So I live in Oxford, as we were saying earlier, uh, in the UK, and not far from Oxford is a town of complete insignificance. It's called Olney. And Olney is not famous really for anything at all, except it once had a famous vicar in its church. That uh, vicar's name was John Newton. And you might know uh, John Newton as the composer of Amazing Grace. He was the once infamous slave trader who became an evangelical Christian. And even, uh, Amazing Grace captures that sentiment of what it is to be the greatest of sinners and yet come to know Christ, come to know grace. John Newton was originally a sailor in the Royal Navy, and you'll know that sailors can at times be pretty rough. Actually, my grandfather was a sailor, he wasn't rough, but <laughs> typically sailors can be rough. Uh, Newton, however, had the reputation to be the roughest of all. Uh, in fact, he was considered so immoral that the ship that he was serving on in the Navy actually traded him with a, to, some slave, uh, to a slave ship in order to get rid of him, which only just allowed him to get more and more out of control. So at the age of 19, John literally had free access to any slave woman that he wanted, uh, this is what he said, I rejoice that I might now be uh, that I was abandoned as I please, without any restraint. I not only sinned with a high hand myself, but I made it my study to tempt and seduce others upon every occasion. Uh, at one time, Newton became a slave himself, and after he uh, got his freedom, he tried to return to England, but he couldn't even get a ride on a ship home because he had this reputation to be uh, one of the most vulgar and blasphemous of men, worse than most of the pirates that he used to associate with. You might say that John Newton's life was kind of the prime example of living outside of Christ until everything changed. And Newton's story, I think, very much captures the sentiments of Colossians 3, which we just had read. It captures it in three ways. It shows what it is to live outside Christ. Newton shows what it is to make a new life inside Christ. And he shows us what it is to sing about our redemption in Christ. So uh, Colossians 3 is not primarily a chapter about singing. It's very much a chapter about Jesus and our life in Jesus. So no matter where you stand or what you think about Jesus, it's hard to ignore uh, what the Apostle says here to say to us about two dramatically different ways of living. And I imagine all of us have things in our life that we too would love God to radically change in us. So let's read on together and, and see what God has to say to us. We start thinking about setting our minds on the things above. And Colossians, uh, the, the book, uses this phrase of being in Christ. In Christ. It's, in one sense, being in Christ is just another way of speaking about being a Christian. But it's also more than that. Uh, being in Christ describes the very essence of being in union with Christ. If you can imagine a perfect marriage and then... Imagine that being a billion times even more perfect than that. That's kind of the essence of what the New Testament describes 
as Jesus' relationship with us. We are his perfect bride. But that's not because of anything that we can do. We are in Christ because Christ chooses to dwell within us. And that's where this chapter starts. We are in Christ perfectly, and therefore we need to go on living in union with him. And and chapter 3 is very much the, the practicalities of living that out. And so it starts with where we set our vision. So in Christ, we don't look downwards. As Christians, our concerns are not about this world at all or the things of this world. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Paul is basically saying that our view of the world should be through the lens of heaven. We look at earth through the lens of heaven. Now, I'm pretty blind without my glasses. I cannot see anything at all at this point. But when I put them back on, my world comes into view. My, my world starts to make sense. I can negotiate life without fear of falling over or crashing my car. And similarly, uh, Colossians is saying that when our eyes are fixed on the resurrected Jesus, the life that God wants me to leave starts to come into perfect view, into perfect focus. So we need to have our eyes fixed on heaven. But in, when Paul says that, does he mean that our our ordinary lives are not important. Is it wrong to be worried about getting a good education or finding a satisfying job or marrying the right person? Well, of course, all these things are important. But as we'll see in a moment, fixing our eyes on Christ is what helps us to make all these kind of decisions. Whether, whether our choices in life are exciting or they're mundane, Being in Christ may mean turning everything in our lives on its head. Because everything that you might hope to achieve in life, every place that you look to find meaning, suddenly becomes no longer relevant, says Paul. Why is that? Because, Paul says, we are dead. We are dead. Being raised in Christ implies that we have died in every real sense to what is important in this world. Verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, what does that mean, to be dead and hidden in Christ? Does it mean that you should become a monk and live in seclusion? Does it mean we just hang out with other Christians, essentially hiding from the world? No, God very much wants us to live for him in the real world, in the time and the place that he has put us. Maybe there's a sense here that being hidden in Christ means that we live uh, under the protection of Jesus in the world. Um, There's this picture that I I like, it's going to come up on the screen, of a guy uh, in a lighthouse. And he's standing there in the midst of a massive storm. The waves around are terrifying and destructive. And yet there he is standing there, completely calm. His hands are in his pockets, just checking things out because he knows that he has this mighty fortress around him, protecting him. And being, in, being hidden in Christ can give us that same sense of security, I think. Thanks, that's all we need, the picture. Uh, but what Paul is perhaps more on about, though, I think is uh, something even more profound than that, more profound than Jesus just being our protection in this world. When we are dead in the world, we are reminded that our whole existence 
is tied to Jesus, to Jesus' death, to Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' future return. Which means we remain dead in Christ until he is revealed on the last day. Paul is calling us to wait and wait and wait with patience for that day. And in that light, all these earthly assumptions that we have about how to live in the world, all those assumptions that we get from TV and movies and songs and from our friends, those assumptions are likely to be wrong. Being dead to the world means that we have to challenge every core assumption about ourselves and we have to be prepared to demolish all of our aspirations. I don't know whether you think about this, what are your aspirations? Is it to finish school and get into a great university course? Is it to be the best in whatever field that you're in? Is it important to you to be the most attractive person in your group of friends? Is it that you want to get married or start a family? Do you want your kids to get into a great school? Uh, are you concerned about securing finances for your retirement? Are you passionate about traveling the world? Do you want to write the best song ever? Do you want to be a great guitarist? Maybe your aspirations are to be great at doing Christian ministry. So none of these things are actually wrong in themselves, but they can only be good things when we view them through the lens of heaven, having our minds set on the things above. Because what if you never achieve any of your aspirations? What if you actually end up being a failure in earthly terms? If your identity is tied to your ability to achieve, you may as well be in a little rowing boat trying to get away from that lighthouse in the storm that we just saw. It would be futile. Instead, when our lives are hidden in Christ, it means my identity is in him. Christ is my life now and Christ is my life for eternity. And I don't need any glory or affirmation from this world because what is important is the glory that I will be clothed in at the return of Jesus. Well, you might be thinking, uh, well, great, I, I understand that, but what does that actually mean practically for my life? How does being in union with Christ actually change my life? And Paul goes on to say that we need to put to death those things that are earthly. And that's what the rest of this passage is about. Because waiting for Christ is not a passive thing. It's a, it's, it's a thing that we fully engage with. Starting in verse 5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And we get two examples of what it is to live an earthly life that need to be put to death. Um, and these are the things that actually quite reminded me of that story of John Newton. Because the two things that Paul uh, highlights here that need to be put to death, the first is sexual immorality and the second is hate and anger. So verse 5, put to death therefore, therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetous, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, it's often leveled against Paul and perhaps even against Christianity in general, that we are against sex and sexual expression and freedom, clearly that is not true at all when you read the Bible, as both sex and true intimacy are highly treasured by God. 
And you can't say that what Paul is addressing here is just a, a cultural or a contextual thing. That is, it was just a problem for the Colossians, but it doesn't have anything to do with us today. Because actually there's relatively little difference in the morality of the first century compared to the 21st century. They didn't have Netflix and Snapchat, but society then is pretty similar to society now in viewing sex in a way that tends to ignore God's parameters for faithfulness and intimacy and genuine love. For our world, maybe that looks like a personal addiction to pornography or an expectation that a TV show will have the obligatory sex scenes or that marriage is not something you enter into until you discover sexual compatibility with your partner. It would not be wrong to say that society today has problems with sexual immorality in the way that the Colossians did. But why would Paul pick this sin above all others? Why is this the prime example of living outside of Christ? Well, Paul highlights that sexual impurity here uh, comes down to something more serious. It comes down to idolatry. And that idolatry tempts the wrath of God. Verse 6, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Now, the pursuit of sexual immorality, which can be expressed in a number of different ways, is tantamount to declaring war on God. Because idolizing sex is placing a false god on a throne before the Creator. Now, just to be clear, Paul is not saying that sexual sin is unforgivable. We are all sexual sinners and there is no sin done by us or done to us that the blood of Christ does not deal with perfectly. But the idolatry, which is at the root of sexual sin, is actually an issue of salvation, Paul says. And obviously, idolatry can be embedded into any of our aspirations, not just sex. But Paul picks on sexual immorality as a sin that I think defined very much the heart of his and maybe our society. Paul saw that this was actually leading people away from Christ. And sadly, I've known many uh, people that profess Christ over the years that have, have loved sexual immorality more than Christ and ended up not being believers. Sexual sin to Paul is fundamentally idolatry. But if you continue on, there's a, then a second list of sins here. And these are not so much linked to God's wrath and our salvation quite in the same way. Rather, these next sins are the sins that destroy our relationships with one another. Verse 8, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. If the sexual sins are fundamentally against God himself then these sins are against the church and other people. And it paints a kind of uncomfortable and ugly picture of what we actually really are like. That, that outside of Christ, we naturally desire to hate our neighbours, from the slander and lies that come from our lips to the anger and the malice which lives in our hearts. When we live life outside Christ... We don't have a life that is primarily concerned with caring for others. It's one that's filled with animosity. So if you add all these things up together, it's actually a pretty dismal picture. And may maybe you can't recognize these sorts of sin in yourself, or maybe you feel far removed from 
people who act like this, like John Newton who's raging against God. Maybe it just, just sounds a bit fictional to you. The truth is that the inclination of each of our hearts is described in this passage. Our hearts are set up and worship, they, our hearts set up and worship idols before God the Creator. In whatever way we choose to express that. And the gospel lens exposes that sin in us all. So it's a dismal picture. But that same gospel, the gospel of grace, that gospel of amazing grace, is that when we clothe ourselves in the gospel of grace, when we clothe ourselves in Christ, we are given a marvelous gift and a vision of a new life. Now that life is described as being dead to the world, but it's actually one where we gain a new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of the creator. So we're told to put on a new self, and that new self involves love. Now, I don't know uh, whether you've seen a music video, it's getting a bit old now, by uh, a band called Coldplay, called The Scientist. If the piano was a little bit closer, I would play it to you. Um, but in this video, there's basically the story of a car accident happening in reverse. It starts with a car crash, but then it rewinds back through the accident, back to the start, uh, when, that's how the song goes, uh, when life was, was good for the people in the story. And that's kind of what Paul does now in Colossians. Having looked at the car crash of our lives outside of Christ, he reverses back through the story. He, he goes back through the anger, through God's wrath, through sexual immorality, to those things that are being put off as being earthly. And he takes us back to the start of how we live with our eyes fixed upwards rather than down to the earth. The picture of the ugliness of our sin is turned on its head through new life in Christ. So working backwards, in place of the anger and slander, the new self in Christ puts on love. It's the opposite of the hate and anger. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, this is not a warm and cuddly sort of love. This is serious love. This is about being genuinely kind to others, being kind to your spouse when you feel tired or grumpy. It's about being humble enough to admit weakness and failure to those that you might be serving in ministry with. It means being patient with your church leaders when they get things wrong. It means we forgive when we are let down and hurt by other Christians. In the same way, Paul says, Jesus forgives our deepest and most ugly sins, so we should be forgiving. In other words, we pursue love as hard and costly love because life in Christ is seeking a perfect harmony within the church. We are to put on a new self of love. But let's keep working backwards. And again, what we see in the place of God's wrath against us is... God dwelling with us, the indwelling of Christ. Verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. It's an odd sort of an idea, but a really crucial one for us to understand. 
that Christ takes up residence in the hearts of his children. This is described by Paul here as the peace of Christ. And, and again, the peace of Christ is not a warm, fluffy idea, but it's actually the means of Christ ruling over us in the depths of who we are. When he talks about our heart, our heart is the entire of our inner being. And only Christ's peace at work in our hearts sets us apart from being God's enemies. Only Christ's peace allows us to avoid the wrath and fear of God. Being at peace removes our fear and rather produces thankfulness in us. And if we keep this backward reversal going, what we see next is really interesting because uh, now we are offered an alternative to the life of sexual, sexual immorality. And you might be thinking, oh, what, what, uh, what is Paul going to suggest here? What is the out, outward sign of living at peace with Christ in our hearts? Well, there's a lot of things that we could pull out of these next couple of verses, but the one thing I'm going to pick on is what I came to talk about, singing. And just before I go any further, I don't, want to, I don't want us to read too much into this parallel. Paul is not saying that Christian singing is the antidote or the opposite of sexual immorality. He's not saying that. What he has been doing, he's been describing outward signs of inner spiritual realities. So sexual immorality is the outward sign of idolatry. So while I can't tell you what's, I can't tell by looking at you what is going on in any of your hearts, I can't tell if you're uh, religiously following idols uh, in your work or in your relationships or in your sports teams or in the music you listen to. Neither can I tell whether you're at peace with God. But what I can tell is I can see the things that you pursue with energy and excitement. I can see the things that drive you. And what Paul says is that people who are passionate about singing the word of Christ are actually outwardly showing the fruit of Christ and his spirit dwelling in them. Singing the word of Christ is an outward sign of Christ dwelling in his people. So that takes us to point five, singing to one another. Now, in our work, we're often asked about why a particular church might not like to sing or sings badly. Well, um, there are a number of reasons why a church might sing badly. One is it might have a really uh, rubbish band or the songs are too hard or, the, or they're too high or too happy. There are a number of reasons why churches might not sing. But a far more serious problem that I think churches need to identify, which uh, infects many, and, and their singing shows this, is they lack a genuine love for one another and for Jesus. If Paul has just shown us two signs of life in Christ, which is love for one another and the word of Christ dwelling in us, then singing here is actually connected to both these ideas the idea of loving one another and Christ dwelling in us. Because we sing the word of Christ and we sing the word in love for each other. So firstly, singing the word. Um, I don't know whether you like singing or not. Some people love singing, others don't. Um, but singing in itself doesn't really mean anything on its own. There are plenty of catchy songs out there in the world whether they be Christian or non-Christian ones, there are plenty of songs that say absolutely nothing at all. They, 
sound really good. They, they're great to sing. They're great to listen to. But the songs are kind of what I would call karaoke songs. They feel great in the moment, but just as quickly that moment has gone because there's really no substance to the singing or the song. My emotions might be affected while I'm singing it, but it doesn't actually change anything about me. So what is the actual, what's the substance of Christian singing which makes church, uh, what makes church singing different to karaoke? Well, we see it in verse 16. It's the word of Christ. God grows and builds his church through the word of his gospel. It's the word which you hear from the preacher. It's the word that you hear read out. But it's also the word that we sing and teach to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And just in case you're wondering what the difference between those three things are, the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, that's actually not that important in the context. Paul is saying that all Christian singing, whatever style or genre, whether it's hymns or hip-hop, it will be rich in the Word and driven by the Holy Spirit. Through our songs, God speaks His Word to us, and through that, He speaks to the whole church. And the Spirit is at work in our singing to plant His Word in each of our hearts. And that creates genuine emotion in us. Verse 16 says uh, that, we ex- that we will be filled with thankfulness as a result of the word dwelling in us. Real gospel singing must provoke a level of heart response to the gospel. If there's no joy and grace and thanks in us when we are singing, then we are, I, I don't think we're really hearing the voice of Jesus. So we sing the word to one another. But secondly, we sing in love towards one another. I didn't make much of it earlier, but those verses in uh, verses uh, 11 to 14 about love towards one another, they're very much about uh, the church being united in Christ. When we put on our new self, whatever identity we once had, whether it was Jew, Greek, Malaysian, Australian, academic, sportsman, musician, fashionista, pastor, politician, IT guy, whatever your identity was, that identity is gone because Christ is in all and in all. We have died and our life is hidden in Christ. That's why we love so profoundly and deeply and unconditionally because we no longer belong to ourselves and the passions that we once had and drove us. We love because God intends his church to be perfectly bound together. Now, when you come to gathering church on a Sunday like this, you might think, oh, that's pretty hard to try and be loving everyone in this church to the, kind of that depth. How, how can I love everyone deeply when I don't even know everyone's names? Well, in singing, singing the words of one another, we actually love in a, in a big and a profound way when we are teaching the word to each other when we sing the word to the whole church. If you think about it, there's nothing, you may not know me personally, but there's nothing greater that you can do for me than to encourage me in God's word to love and serve Jesus more. And there's no greater love that I can show to you than to encourage you to open your heart to the transforming power of the word of Christ. I want to see you moved to deep and genuine thankfulness. And when I sing to you, when I sing with you, that is what I'm doing. 
because together we are pouring out the praise of our hearts back to God. And if you're in any, if you're in any doubt of how important this act of singing is to one another, just look into the last verse, verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. There's a really exciting connection here between our singing together and our all-of-life service of God. The assumption is that whatever is happening in our singing in church, it should be influencing, it should be training us for life out in the world. Remember, back at the beginning of the chapter, it said that, that uh, we are called to view the world through the lens of heaven, to set our minds on the things above. Well, that's what our singing helps us to do. Singing the word allows the heavenly Christ to be dwelling in our earthly hearts. It inspires our thankfulness for every situation, for our, our life in, in our school, in our marriages, our sports teams, in our offices. When we give thanks for everything in the name of Jesus, our singing trains us so that these things that we love do not become idols because we view them as part of God's creation that we can genuinely delight in rather than serving it. This is why singing helps us to profoundly love the church. We sing because we long for one another to know and love Christ in our hearts and lives. We sing to each other because we want to see uh, each other uh, grow in godliness and thankfulness and praise in the, in the church and in their lives. We started talking about John Newton, the greatest of sinners at the beginning. Well, when John Newton became a Christian and became a pastor, uh, he was famous in his time for many things. He was apparently a, a very uh, famous and fabulous preacher. He was a mentor to many of the great and the good of the time. But most of us will remember John Newton for one thing, that he was a saved sinner that understood grace so deeply that all he wanted to do was sing about it. He understood the need to encourage his church, his brothers and sisters, in the songs of the gospel. And partly why we have Newton and other people's hymns preserved for us is that uh, he put together a famous hymn book from that church that he was in. And in the, the front of the hymn book, he wrote these words. The hour is approaching, and at my time of life cannot be very distant when my heart, my pen, and my tongue will no longer be able to move in their service. But I trust while my heart continues to beat, it will feel a warm desire for the prosperity of their souls. But while my hand can write and my tongue speak, it will be in the business and pleasure of my life to promote their growth and establishment in the grace of God and Savior. That was John Newton's desire for the, the, the songs and the hymns that he wrote, to, to love the church he was serving, to see them built up uh, in the love and the knowledge and service of Christ. May our singing do the same. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us such a great and a wonderful gospel in Jesus Christ. We acknowledge that there is nothing that we can uh, to bring to this, but that Christ chooses to dwell in our hearts. Uh, please help.
Help us to accept that gift of grace freely, that our hearts may be full of thankfulness, that it would work against the worldliness and the idolatry of our hearts so that we might live lives that are truly pleasing to you in every way and use the singing, uh, the singing of our church, uh, the singing of Christian songs to help train and inspire and grow us in thankfulness and godliness that we might translate that into every part of our lives, that we might be servants of you uh, in this world for your glory. In his name we pray. Amen.